So All Eyes Visual VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromycel technology. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe MySight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Do your patients know what presbyopia is? There are people who are afraid of the press. Have you talked to your patients about multifocal contact lenses? I've heard the bifocal, but not right, multifocal. Not multifocal. Do you need help with your multifocal strategy? Learn more at the conclusion of this episode. Hi, I'm Dr. Kerry Gelb, and I want to say thank you for supporting our Open Your Eyes podcast. Our reach and growth was tremendous in 2022. Thanks to our amazing guests, sponsors, and loyal audience. We look forward to bringing you more riveting interviews in 2023. But before we start with the 2022 podcast highlights, I want to dedicate this show to Dr. Stuart Richer, optometry and vision science lost a giant. Dr. Richer's last one study is the most quoted optometry study of all time. But most of all, I lost a mentor, soulmate, and great friend. When I would call Stu, even toward the end of his incredible life, I would ask him, Stu, how are you doing? He would always answer, blessed. Those of us who are lucky enough to know Stu would enjoy long philosophical conversations with him. Stu, without trying, left you smarter, wiser, and even more open-minded. I will always miss Stu, and I think of him often. I know he made me smarter and a better person. Optometry lost a great scientist, and I lost a dear friend. Is the eye such a good biomarker for systemic disease? Well, the eye is a wonderful biomarker, as you know, because we can, uh, all of the cranial nerve, we have 12 pairs of cranial nerves and, and our cranial nerves, basically uh, seven of them are involved with eyesight for one thing. So while we really talk about the eye brain together, we don't, we don't just talk about the eye. And then it's one of the only uh, organs in the body, the only organ where you can directly visualize the circulatory system of the eye, the, the arterials and venules on the, and the retina. So it can give you advanced insight about a patient's uh, aging process and the amount of disease that they have uh, in their eyes. So we can, as I mentioned, we can pick up diabetes, but we can also pick up car cardiovascular 
disease very, very early in patients. Um, and, and if we're knowledgeable, we can make recommend, recommendations, I believe, to slow down the progress of these diseases. So the eye is really a, a biomarker of how we're aging in general, whether we're aging gracefully or whether we're aging uh, faster than we need to age. So if you were to put, you know, 100 children in a room and uh, have them play, most of them would play pretty well and pretty similarly with each other. And they would have uh, similar gait and, and similar attributes. But if you put, as you know, if you took 180-year-olds and put them in, in an auditorium and, and or gymnasium and looked at these same skill levels, the way they were ambulating their visual state, their cognition state, and so forth, you would find that there's a huge difference um, as we get older in the rate of aging. So this is something that I've been very, very interested in. And um, at the VA, I've been privileged to take care of veterans, uh, starting with World War I veterans. Uh, in fact, I had a Civil War veteran, I'm not a Civil War veteran, but I had the wife of a Civil War veteran uh, who I examined. So that was, you know, start, starting off. Um, uh, because the Civil War vets used to marry very, very young women often, and so that, that was kind of an interesting thing. Then I had the World War I veterans, and they, I've, some of them were about four times my age when I started. And, and then I now have a, a large group of, well, the, the World War II guys are, are, are declining, but I still have a large number uh, of World War II guys that I've been taking care of. They're in, well into their 90s now. And then the Korean War veterans, and then the Vietnam War veterans, and then the Afghan, Afghan uh, the um, Gulf War uh, veterans, uh, and Afghanistan uh, War veterans. So I've, I've seen it all in terms of uh, U.S. history and people who fought for our country. So it's great honor and privilege. I have not fought for the United States, uh, but I try to give back a little bit by taking care of these guys and gals. Let's not forget there are women veterans out there. So I examined women, men veterans of, of all ages. Tell us about some of the signs you see inside the eye when somebody is at risk for cardiovascular disease. That's a great question. So, you know, one of the things that I've been able to pick up on, uh, we like to talk about smokers, for instance, and smokers have, um, uh, you know, are going to develop cataracts and macular degeneration uh, 10 years earlier than non-smokers. Well, if you're, if you're really observant looking at the outside of the eye, on the white of the eye, you can see little microaneurysms in your smokers. And this is an indication that the patient is becoming, uh, is or, 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 or was vitamin C deficient because vitamin C is the major antioxidant, uh, extracellular outside the cell antioxidant, and it's highly dependent in humans on dietary intake of, uh, plant food, vegetables, and fruit. And so I can often pick this up in smokers and <clears throat> also certain uh, cataract types can, can indicate uh, an enhanced uh, ability to develop um, a cardiovascular disease, which is tied into something called insulin resistance, which Carrie and I uh, have studied together, but we can identify early diabetes from the outside of the eye as well and, and subtle, subtle lots of little subtle things that we pick up over the years if you know what to look like. Even a fluttering eyelid can indicate a magnesium deficiency. And your magnesium status is one of eight 
very, very important biomarkers determining, uh, you know, how well you're going to do down the road. So there's, there's lots of things. We, we, uh, so I mentioned the outside of the eye. I mentioned the, uh, the, uh, the conjunctival uh, out pouchings. You know, even just, um, Kerry, just um, uh, asking the question or putting your stethoscope up and trying to screen for an abdominal aneurysm in patients. So if patients uh, are at risk for um, uh, these microaneurysms, they also may have... Um, bulging um, blood vessels, uh, arteries in, in their abdomen, okay? So you could, you could counsel them to have an ultrasound and sometimes pick up, uh, a, a, you know, in, in a, a large aortic aneurysm of, of significant size that it's life-threatening. Also, as you know, you look at the retina, and the retina can tell you whether a person has mild, moderate, or severe arteriosclerotic disease. And it's, it's pretty easy to spot the patients who are, are usually younger and don't have much atherosclerosis in their retinas. And it's pretty simple. Uh, even a first or second year optometry student, student could diagnose whether the patient has something called papilledema, where there's such hypertensive papilledema, where there's such severe uh, changes to the optic nerve and the blood pressure is elevated uh, typically. But it's those in-between decision points um, where the patient doesn't have a little bit of disease and they have, or, or a lot of disease, but they're kind of in the middle and they, and you have to ask the questions, uh, do you, does any, did you have a mother or father who died of, of a heart attack or a stroke? And that's where, where I move into action. Um, in combination with looking directly at the blood vessels, I'm able to ask those questions. Was there any premature death in your family? And often they'll come out and the patient will say, yeah, my, my relatives have not lived past 50. And then what I do is I, I, you know, of course, alert the, their primary care doctor, notate in the chart that they have accelerated uh, atherosclerosis based on looking at the, um, uh, at the retina. But what's important to understand is those exact changes are occurring in the heart and, and um, the kidneys and the brain. So you're going to get multisensory impairment, multi-system impairment when you see things happening in the retina. So it keys you in that we need to to move to not only looking at uh, cholesterol and triglycerides and so forth, the things you hear about all the time uh, from your doctor, but we run a series of tests uh, that is called a vertical serum analysis, which are advanced tests. Some of these uh, tests uh, you can ask your, you can run and typically are run if you've had a heart attack or a stroke, but we, as an optometrist, I like to, to identify these before the patients had a heart attack or stroke. So I will often have these tests run, interpret the tests because there's standards for the tests. And then in many, many cases, these tests require nutritional supplementation in addition to the obvious changes in lifestyle, controlling blood pressure, blood sugar, lipids, uh, and so forth. You can actually make uh, recommendations, uh, which, which we've done many, 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 many times. It's sort of what I do. Um, and I try to teach this to students because many, many students are not uh, getting uh, and this information. And I don't like to leave it to my brethren in ophthalmology because they're used to working on acute conditions, emergency situations, uh, surgery. So they're into doing things to people 
what I try to reflect is doing things for people by providing them information on how they can improve their, their lifestyle, on how they can you know, better their own lives by taking matters into their own hands. So history is, also, is very important when it comes to ocular emergency versus urgencies. Uh, what are some of the questions you might ask for some, as somebody maybe is calling up on the phone, they lost their vision? What's some of the history, uh, the type of questions that we would ask in the history? Yeah, very good. Very good point. So I think history is something we can't underestimate the power of. Um, when we're getting a history from a patient, say, for example, they do call in and they have, you know, a new symptom of vision loss. First of all, you want to qualify the vision loss. Is it, you know, a little bit of blurring that kind of comes and goes when they blink their eyes? That might be more indicative of something like dry eye or ocular surface disease, not a true emergency. If it's something where, you know, I lost my half of my vision, you know, the right half of my vision went black, you know, um, something like that or a sudden blackening of the vision or everything goes dark would be more indicative of maybe a vasculopathic thing, such as something that could be a harbinger for a stroke actually. Um, so those ones to me are, are, it's important to kind of classify exactly how the patient would describe it. And then also if the vision returned again. So, you know, it doesn't always mean it's not, not emergency if the vision came back because certainly we know it still can be. Um, but describing, you know, is the vision still like that? And when, when was it, you know, was it two weeks ago or was it six months ago? Or did this happen an hour ago? Those kinds of things also help kind of drive, you know, my exam and uh, when I need to see the patient or where I, where I would send them next. Do you have any type of emergency kit that you have in, uh, in the Baskin Palmer emergency department? So, um, yes and no. I mean, we, we have everything. So it's not like there's one little box that we pull out. It's, it's honestly a, a huge team effort. So just to give, I guess, maybe the listeners a little bit better of an idea, we're part of the University of Miami and we are with the University of Miami Hospitals and our Baskin Palmer Emergency Department is actually open 24-7. So we never close. Thankfully, I don't work 24-7. I've got normal hours, but during the day, we're the busiest anyway. Um, and so we have a huge, you know, team of, you know, physicians, resident physicians, we've got nurses, we have technicians, um, everyone down to, you know, basically all levels of care is, they're all critically important. Um, and so, you know, in that kind of context, we do have, you know, everything that we could need possibly. So we've got, you know, an area for eye wash, which is one of the most important things. When we see a patient, when they come in within, you know, a few minutes of them basically telling their name at the front desk, if they need some kind of, um, you know, rinsing of the eyes or things like that on the, the first nurse that talks to them is basically our triage nurse and she gets their history and then takes a pH and we decide what we need to do at that point. So before the doctor even sees the patient, you know, our nurses are actually helping to already assess the situation and kind of stabilize things um, from an ocular standpoint. Um, other things that we have, you know, in office, definitely all of the drops to bring the pressure down. Um, we've got, you know, things like Diamox in case we would need that um, for patients who may, may be in an acute angle closure and we have to bring the pressure down. So there's a lot of, you know, those different things that we do have. Um, and then we probably have, I would say, more than the average, the average place just because of kind of our affiliations with the hospital. When I look at true emergencies, uh, maybe chemical burns or central retinal artery occlusion, 
Uh, and both of them could cause blindness, but both of if treated quick enough, we could prevent blindness as eye doctors. Let's start with chemical burns. So somebody comes in with chemical burns, what's the first thing that we need to do? So the first thing that we need to do is um, get a brief, you know, brief history. What happened? When was it? Did you clean the eye or rinse the eye at all? Um, and you can, you can get a general idea of kind of what's going on from that sense from the patient. You don't want to spend too much time going in, let's get the visual acuity, let's get the eye pressure, let's do all this and that with the normal exam flow. I would rather someone come in, we know they've got a chemical injury or chemical burn, um, and do exactly what, what we do, which is basically triage the patient, ask what happened, when was it, check the pH. Those are the first things that you need to do with those patients. And we're checking um, it in the eye, I just, so just to make sure everybody knows it's chemical burn of the eye. Yes, exactly, about. yeah. So we're eye doctors. <laughs> yeah. Um, so basically what that entails is uh, every office, I think, across the United States should have pH strips, and that basically will allow us to check the pH. Now, a couple of things when checking that, um, I always like to remind people that, especially my, my residents that work with me, if you're checking the pH in, in one eye compared to the other, we do it basically by holding down the lower lid and putting a little strip of what feels like paper almost, um, kind of in that lower fornix, that lower pocket. And then within a few seconds, we have a reading of the pH. So that tells us how acidic or how basic the ocular surface is. And we can compare it to their good eye. If they have one eye that got the chemical in it and the other eye is fine. I oftentimes like compare it person to, or eye to eye on the same person. Um, if it's something that got in both eyes and sometimes I'll actually check it against, I've checked it against myself because pH strips are, are great. Um, but if you've had them for a long time, if they've been exposed to sun or UV light, they might not function exactly the same. Um, so in that case, you know, if you need a control, I've used myself <laughs> for it just to kind of check. Um, so once we get that information, you know, and the pH should be around seven. So if you have a pH that's nine, we know that's very basic, right? And that I needs to be lavaged and rinsed immediately. Um, in those cases too, it's helpful to, you know, rinse the eye or wash it out. A lot of places will have BSS, like sterile BSS solution, which is fine. Um, if places don't have anything, you can use sterile water, um, but there are other solutions that are out there that are amphoteric solutions, meaning that they turn from a base to an acid based on what the surrounding uh, chemical is. So those are actually cool. We don't use those. We use just kind of the, the BSS and we have a, an eye wash station that we use, um, but that's a good thing to, to keep in mind. So really that's kind of the, the first step there. And then after we rinse the eye and we neutralize the pH, which might take a few rounds uh, and rechecking after, you know, wait about five minutes to see, you know, let some of that, that water or saline rinse out. So you're not just checking diluted, you know, saline. And then you can recheck the pH again. And then once you get it normal, then we can get our history of our vision, things like that from the patient. I'm so excited to talk to you because you're doing something that a lot of the doctors aren't doing and that could help a lot of people. Tell us how you got interested in Micropulse laser treatment. So, you know, the first time I used Micropulse laser treatment, I was in my retinal fellowship in 2012. Um, I had done probably hundreds of lasers throughout my ophthalmology residency uh, in Philadelphia but I didn't have access to Micropulse laser. And at the time it was kind of an emergent technology. And when I started my fellowship in Baltimore was the first time that I used it uh, and I understood how it worked. 
And um, my mentor, who is a world-renowned retinal specialist, was really a, kind of a very uh, cutting-edge retinal surgeon. And you know, he, he was always on the forefront of new technologies. We had access to multiple different types of modalities in our fellowship program. Um, and so you know, we, we had yellow lasers, green lasers, red lasers, micropulse lasers, regular argon lasers. And so, you know, we really had a full armamentarium uh, of lasers to treat different kinds of retinal disorders. And so that's when I, that's when the first time it was that I used micropulse laser. Why do you think that more retina specialists aren't using it? Part of it has to do with the fact that a lot of retinal surgeons, especially in the last decade, have kind of moved away from laser treatment. You know, the, the, the injections have taken center stage. And of course, you know, anti-VEGF injections uh, are revolutionary. I mean, before the injections, treatments were really substandard. Uh, and a lot of times they would, you know, laser a CNV lesion in the eye, a bleeding in the eye, and they would stop the bleeding where they would leave a massive scar. So when the injections came, the pendulum swung completely to the other direction. And when that happens, you know, from what I've noticed and from what my mentor had trained me in fellowship, he said, you'll see this in your career. When something new comes, everyone rushes the other way. And the things that have been working, they almost sometimes neglect. And so if you really want to be a good doctor and a good retinal specialist, you really want to keep, you know, um, all options open. You want to keep all options on the table. You want to tailor it to the patient. And so when these injections came, people kind of forgot about lasers, you know, but lasers still work. I mean, not everybody needs an injection. I mean, you know, I do injections as far as I can see on a daily basis, but I also use laser in my clinic. And there are patients who are perfect candidates for laser, who you don't have to put a needle in the eye to. You don't have to commit them to monthly injections, um, especially in diabetic patients. Who gets diabetes? Younger patients, patients 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. These are patients who are working. They have things to do. They have families, they have children, they have jobs. And really to commit every single one of these patients to an injection on a monthly basis is really asking for a lot. And you know, you wonder why some of these patients don't show up to their appointments. They'll get one or two injections and then they say, you know what, I'm just too busy. I can't keep coming to these monthly appointments. That's a perfect situation where a patient can benefit from a laser treatment. You can see them back three months, four months, six months later, reassess and reapply if needed. So it works for the patient. It works for your clinic and it probably saves the healthcare system money because you're not doing $2,000, you know, injections every month on a patient. So, you know, I like to incorporate it in my clinic, but I understand why so many doctors have kind of moved away because they're all, they've all ran towards the injection uh, treatment and they've kind of neglected this, uh, this tool. I mean, that's a great point. I mean, asking a patient to come back every month or every six weeks or even every two months for an ejection is really asking a lot of a patient. And it's understandable why people might, may drop out. Uh, so let's go through the different lasers. I think many people are confused about the different lasers from the red laser, the 695 to, to Xenon, to Argon, to Micropulse. Uh, even YAG, tell us about the different lasers and, and how they're different and what they're used for in a different way. Right. So the two common lasers that we use in present day are really red lasers and 
uh, sorry, green lasers and, and, and yellow lasers. And these are the most common ones that are used today. And both, you can use both of them to treat different kinds of retinal disorders, such as diabetic macular edema, you know, tears in the, in the, in the retina, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, those are the two conventional ones. And then you have this category of micropulse lasers. Now, certain, certain companies make laser units where you can, you can do it in a continuous way, or the standard way of doing the laser, or you can switch the button and switch the laser into a micropulse laser. And there's really a key difference between the conventional laser and the micropulse laser. When, you, when you're using a continuous laser or the standard laser, all the same name, when you fire the shot, the laser delivers that power continuously during that, during that time period. And what that does is it leaves a little scar in the back of the eye. And sometimes you want that scar in the back of the eye, especially if it's in the periphery of the retina. For example, when you're treating a retinal tear, you want that the, the, the area around the tear or around the hole to form a, a, a scar to kind of cement the retina in place to prevent the retinal detachment. But when you're treating problems in the macula, you don't necessarily want a scar. So this is where micropulse really fits in. The way the micropulse laser works is it chops up the laser. So instead of that one, that same power being delivered the entire time, it chops up the laser into tiny little bits. So it never heats up the retina and therefore, it never leaves a scar in the back of the eye. And that's the beauty of the micropulse. It does not leave a scar, not to mention you don't feel it. So, you know, using conventional lasers sometimes when you're treating the patient, they really feel that. I mean, it can be really painful for them. With a micropulse laser, you don't feel a thing. It, it, it kind of, if you really put it in layman's terms, it tickles the retina enough to, to, to activate the cells in the retina and the bottom layer of this retina to kind of suck out the fluid and which reduces then the swelling in the back of the eye. So that's the difference between the two types of lasers. MacuHealth, your science born and tested solutions for visual performance, macular degeneration, and dry eye syndrome. New products coming soon. Embrace the science. The All Eyes Visual All VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information. Uh, before we get into the top 10 research studies, I really would like to help the audience, and we have a lot of people from the vision community, we have a lot of physicians, and we also have a lot of the public that watch this, and people want to know how to interpret a clinical paper, and it's very difficult for the public, and even for doctors, you know, we're not trained, whether we're medical doctors or, or optometrists, we're not really trained in understanding clinical papers, so if you could help us with that. So what is the, the beginning, what is the basis to help us begin with understanding a clinical paper? Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's a, it's a great question. Only yesterday I presented uh, one of our own studies at a, at a conference in the UK, and it was very well received and a lot of interest, but one of the um, delegates queried the, the sample size of the, of the study. And um, the gentleman was uh, quite critical, in fact, openly that it was a, what he's thought was a small study, a sample size of 120 participants that we had um, tested over time. And I politely explained that, you know, with this type of research, 
you know, of course you want large samples if you can get them, if you can get access to the large samples. But understanding uh, how the study is set up, how the study is designed and how we can kind of take meaning from what we find. And one of the points I made, and I think we go into the details a little bit about the different types of studies and how we should interpret the data within that, was that, you know, if you design a study, you design it in a way that you have an outcome measure that you're interested in. OK, so uh, the outcome that we may be interested in our case might be visual function. We might measure, for example, contrast sensitivity. Now, that's a very different outcome measure to an outcome measure that is, let's say, um, will a patient develop age related macular degeneration? So straight away, I'm looking at two two areas of interest that are connected, but very, very different in terms of the, the type of variable that you look at in that study. In other words, in, in the research question where we want to look at contrast, sensitivity, a function measure that will change significantly if we have an effect of intervention, you may need a much smaller sample to demonstrate that effect. In the context of a disease where you're, that you're trying to stop a morphology, a disease, the whole reason, or one of the reasons why they need such large samples in those study ARIDs, for example, was that the effects of, are very, very subtle over that time period on the, on the, on the condition. So I think one of the first points I'll make and one of the learnings from for, for your listeners as to how they should do it is you must look at the totality of the data and the different types of data that's available. And all research starts at a situation, Kerry, where, you know, maybe in the first case, it's you're looking at animal studies. And if an animal study has an interest, let's say, with carotenoids, that you can have an effect in, in a mouse model. And this is all, all, of course, what happened. Then you start looking at case studies, which are very, very small samples, but observations, if you like, and clinical observations are important. And essentially, you want that to scale into larger observations where you look at larger samples, ultimately then into what we call interventional studies, where you test your treatment in this case over a period of time and you have a very specific outcome measure. And if all of that um, and if your research question and your idea is correct, of course, what happens then is that, you know, you have what we call a meta-analysis, which is um, where other independent qualified experts will look at the totality of the data. They'll have very strict rules in how they do that. And then they'll make a judgment as to whether, you know, this treatment or this intervention or this research idea is correct or not. And, and that's kind of like this pyramid of excellence around, around science. But I think one of the things I'd like your listeners to take from this is that, you know, the design of the study and the quality of the study is essential, but I really believe in looking at the totality of the data. And that is everything from the case reports up to, up to the top level double blind placebo controlled trials. And there's one, there's one other important point maybe I should make before I let you back in. And that is, you know, we must understand in our field of research and in nutrition, because you and I carry have a passion for nutrition and how we can actually impact people's lives with, you know, lifestyle changes, nutritional intervention, supplementation. Um, you know, the type of research we do does not have access to the, the millions and the billions that pharmaceutical experiments will, will get access to. So it doesn't mean that we shouldn't take value from the different types of studies that scientists like me and doctors like you get to be part of and conduct where we can really learn and help patients. Let me bring us back to the real basics, like defining the study population, yeah. demographics. How do you go about keeping that equal uh, when you're doing a research study or 
what, how do you go about considering those two, considering okay. those things when doing a study? A, a, a great question. And, you know, I teach on research methodology here in Waterford at, the, at what's now uh, going to be announced as a university. And when I'm teaching on the research methodology, the first, the first element of, um, I bring to the, the students that are learning how to do research is I ask them to put up their hands if anyone in the audience is, is a statistician and qualified statistician. And of course, none of them are qualified statisticians. So I say, OK, but you have a challenge. You need to do statistics. So I make a comparison to, you know, um, basically I ask the question, how many people then can drive a car? And most people will put up their hand that they can drive a car. And the, the point here is that, you know, they may not be able to build an engine to drive a car, just like they may not be statisticians to, to really understand the nuts and bolts of statistics. But they need to figure out in a research study how to use the data and how to use the statistical programs to, to, to get that momentum in, in their research question to, to, to answer the questions and, and how we go about it. And to your question in terms of like, where do we start here? How do you even consider a sample? Okay, I, we never get access to the entire population. In, in any research question, say macular degeneration or macular pigment measurements, let's just say if the research question is, you know, what is the average measure of macular pigment in, in for every human being alive in New York? The way to answer that question is to measure everybody in, in New York. But of course, you're, you can't do that. It's not feasible to do that. So all research at the very beginning becomes limited and biased in, in that you have to take a sample of the population of interest. And this is, you mentioned the word description. So we get a description of the population. And this is where your statistical models start to become important because what you have to do is to put effort in and you look at the feasibility. This is where I talk about feasibility of a study. So in the context of us measuring macular pigment in a population, somebody has to do it. You have to have enough instrumentation to do it. You have to have enough time to do it. You have to have the budget to support the people that are required to do it. So that's like, so you would design your study then Kerry to say, okay, I can get a sample of the entire population and then the statistical and the research exercises to draw meaning from that sample where you can learn something from that sample. And this is actually where, um, you know, confidence intervals come into play. And one of the, one of the uh, statistical outcomes, or you may see referenced in scientific papers, are confidence intervals. And essentially, confidence intervals are greatly influenced, Kerry, by the sample and the size of the sample that you have access to. The larger your sample, um, the more confidence you have around the measurements that you're doing, the mean and the outcomes that you get within that sample. So if you have a very small sample in a population, um, your, your confidence intervals will be um, less, less uh, stringent in terms of what we'll be able to infer from the statistics. So, so it's, there, there's many factors to it. Um, and it, one other point I'd like to make is that the sampling itself um, is essential, you know, so for if you were to do an experiment on, you know, measuring ma age related macular degeneration, if you were to, to just randomly select people over a certain age, that's going to give you a good idea of the, the prevalence, let's say, at a point in time of macular degeneration. But if you were to just go into maybe a sports center 
and say, I want to measure everyone here for macular degeneration. And typically the average age may be, you know, younger than the age at which we have the disease. So that's the wrong sample to go after. So study design and thought around how we um, get access to the sample is crucially important. And then, you know, as we scale up this pyramid of scientific excellence in terms of the, the experiments we can do, you might have, um, you know, a description of a sample where you say, oh, everyone over the age of 60 um, has a age-related macular degeneration if they have like a poor diet or they smoke cigarettes or, you know, so you can bring other categories into your research question. And this is where your, your case control come into it. If we're looking at cases, people with the disease and controls people without the disease. So um, it's the observations and the sampling and, and the statistics around how we do that are very, very valuable and, and not something to be forgotten in terms of interpreting research data and outcomes from research experiments. What are, what are fatty acids? What are omega-3s? Let's start with omega-3s first. Okay, well, omega-3s are, well, I guess I probably should start with a fatty acid because that is uh, basically uh, the whole world we're living in. Uh, fatty acids are simply carbon chains, a single chain of carbon atoms. That's a fatty acid, uh, and it has a acid group, which is why we call it a fatty acid, on one, one end, chemically speaking, and uh, on the other end of the molecule is uh, just the end of the molecule. And, and the, these are what, the, the best mind picture of a fatty acid basically is to think about a bottle of vegetable oil in the grocery store or a, a butter or Crisco. Those things are made 95% of fatty acids. Uh, they're in a, what's called a triglyceride form. Uh, means three fatty acids hooked together on one molecule, but that's uh, fundamentally they're fatty acids. And fatty acids are fats. If uh, fats are, fats are solid at room temperature, oils are liquid at room temperature, but they're all fats together. Um, the omega-3s, you alluded to three different omega classes, there's, and there's more omegas than that, but the, the important ones are really the omega-3 and the omega-6, because those are the two families of fatty acids that we call essential, meaning we can't make them in our bodies. We can pretty much make all the other types of omega omega fatty acids, um, but the omega threes and omega sixes are unique in that we have to have them in our diet. Uh, so the omega threes and sixes, they get the name isn't just pulled out of blue blue sky. It means something. Um, if you think about this long chain of carbon atoms that I call a, a fatty acid, and one end is a the acid group. Uh, and we, in chemistry, we call that uh, the, the first carbon. We call that the alpha carbon. That's the beginning. And then the, at the very end of the molecule is the omega carbon, alpha and omega, in the Greek alphabet, beginning and end. Uh, sometimes we call that last carbon the nth carbon, the last carbon. Uh, so we'll get omega minus three means that the first double bond in the molecule, so typically most of the bonds between the carbon atoms are single bonds in chemistry. Sometimes we have double bonds and that changes the structure. The first double bond in every omega-3 fatty acids is the third position from the omega carbon. 
so the last carbon. So it's an omega minus three position. Same for omega six, the first one is six positions in. And that's sort of the last name, in a sense, if you think about families. The, the last name of the family is that little carbon structure. Um, and so all the omega-3s have the, that situation where the first double bonds at the last three, three positions in. And then there's about four or five different members of the omega-3 family. Uh, the ones we're most interested in are EPA and DHA, which are the two omega-3s that are in fish oils that come from the ocean fundamentally. Uh, there's one other omega-3 that's called alpha-linolenic acid, ALA, and that is uh, a shorter chain to come more of a second cousin in a way. Um, to, and that's what you hear about in flaxseed oil or, or perilla seed oil, chia seeds. They have that one. But that particular omega-3 fatty acid, ALA, is, uh, doesn't really impact the omega-3, the good omega-3s in the body very much at all. So we really focus on EPA and DHA, the marine ones. So that's the omega-3 story. The ALA, how much of it actually gets converted to, to DHA or EPA? Um, the rule of thumb, less than, less than 5%, maybe in some studies, less than 1%. And is there any benefit to eating uh, flax, seed, flax seeds or hemp seeds when it, for, the, for ALA for energy or does it, does it help us in any way? Well, they, I mean, they're, they're fine. Uh, those products um, are, are fine. Uh, traditionally, things like uh, uh, flaxseed might be used uh, for uh, constipation as, as uh, uh, fiber, in a sense, in the diet to improve uh, GI function or, uh, you know, uh, so you don't get constipated. Uh, that kind of thing keeps things moving. Um, but from the omega-3 side, uh, they don't really add much from an omega-3 benefit, uh, but they're, they're, they're fine foods, fine products for other reasons, but not so much for the omega-3. One time it was felt that flaxseed oil, taking a lot of flaxseed oil, can increase the risk of prostate cancer. Is that something that's still thought of, or is it something that you even thought about in a while? Well, yeah, I haven't seen that. I mean, there, yeah, there, there was a time when there were some studies that suggested that. Um, I think that has been Put away the, the, the average intake of, of alpha linolenic ALA, the plant omega three in America is like like a one and a half grams a day, something like that. So it's you know a quarter of a teaspoon amount of of, uh, of ALA fatty acid, and that's fine. That serves our our needs perfectly well. Uh, but again, it doesn't give us the EPA and DHA, which are so. ALA is just to be simple, 18 carbons long, and it has three of these double bonds. EPA and DHA are 20 and 22 carbons long, so they're considerably longer molecules, and they have four and five, five and six double bonds. So they are very chemically very different structures, more complex structures, and it's just hard to go from that more simple ALA structure to the EPA and DHA. At one time, patients would think they would take a spoonful of flaxseed oil, and they thought they were getting the same benefit of they were taking a spoonful of DHA, EPA, or uh, fish oil. That's right. That's called creative marketing. It's called deceptive marketing, in my view, because the people that are selling flaxseed oil say, full of omega-3, which is literally true. It's a little deceptive because people don't realize that the 
the, the best omega-3s are the EPA and DHA, which there's none of that in, in flaxseed oil. So reading a visual field is almost like reading an x-ray, you know, so getting good at reading x-ray, getting good at reading uh, visual fields. So Dr. Finelli, I want you to help us with this. Uh, maybe you want to share your screen because I know you have some images, uh, but so with the visual fields, we start off with the the nerve uh, the nerve fiber layer, and then we go into the optic nerve, we go into the chiasm, we go into the optic track, we go into the radiations and the visual cortex, and different defects or problems in the brain that affect these this pathway uh, will give different visual fields and help us with our diagnosis. So let's start with the you know, something that we probably see more, you know, with, you know, maybe a glaucoma patient and the, and the nerve fiber layer. So if we could, if we could start with some of those, I, I know you're sharing your screen right now. So why, why Dr. Finelli is sharing his screen? Let me just ask uh, uh, Dr. Gonzalez, you know, for a neuro-ophthalmologist who this is their bread and butter looking at visual fields, how long do you think it takes a neuro-ophthalmologist to get good at being able to read the visual field and knowing where it is in, in the part of the brain and, you know, doing an MRI or, or, or some kind of a scan and being usually being pretty right that that is going to be the localization of the defect? It, it, it depends on the, uh, the purpose, the reason why you did the visual field. If the, result, the visual failure you did was for screening purposes, it usually takes a few seconds to realize what the problem is, uh, or a few minutes then to go into and, and make sure that you are looking at the right defect. But if you are then looking at progression, so how the visual field have changed, et cetera, then it probably takes a little bit more, a little bit longer, because now you want to look into not only the grayscale, but you also wants to look into the uh, total and pattern deviation to understand whether the defect is due to general homogeneous depress of the uh, hill of vision due to, let's say, refractive errors of cataract, or if it is an actual neurologic uh, disorder. So it's, it, it doesn't take long, most of the time. And, and the better the technology, uh, the easier it will be to accomplish this task. And I wouldn't be surprised as very soon, um, there are actually already exist. There's some program that can detect the kind of defect that you have. I think what we are lacking is the, you know, um, the regulatory process to really adopt those kind of automatic assessment of visual field. And uh, Dr. Finelli, are you able to share your screen? Yes, I am. Let me uh, do that here. Okay. And there we go. Um, you know, to the point of, of visual fields being utilized in clinic, Everything that we do from a visual field perspective is anatomically guided. Either we're dealing with a known entity, for example, glaucoma, and we do visual fields to monitor 
how severe the glaucoma is and whether or not we have it stabilized or vice versa. We're picking up a visual field defect in a screening test and we need to sort out where in the visual system uh, that problem is. So it all boils down to anatomy. So I, I just wanted to go through a couple strategies for, for the docs that are on board listening to this to consider when they're looking at incorporating visual fields. And, and probably one of the more common indications that we have for visual field testing is in the management of our patients with glaucoma. Now, you know, it brings up the question, well, where, where is the damage occurring? We have certainly, you know, advanced structural uh, technologies, OCT technologies to help us see where that damage is occurring in, in patients with glaucoma. But it, again, it all boils down to anatomy. This is a multicolor image of a patient who I've seen for years who has advanced glaucoma. Now, this is not a true color picture, but one of the advantages to multimodal imaging is that it can highlight, for example, nerve fiber layer defects, which are hallmark characteristics of glaucoma. So this is a, a multicolor image here on the left. And then if we're using a, a green reflectance image, this kind of highlights more anterior retina. And we can see these striations and these arcuate uh, wedge defects that are very common in patients with glaucoma. So we know about glaucoma, where the damage occurs. We have ganglion cell bodies that live here in the center portion of the macula. They give rise to axons and those axons head in this arcuate fashion toward the optic nerve. Now we also have a papillomacular bundle of axons that take a straight shot from the center of the fovea over to the optic nerve and, and are primarily localized in the temporal aspect of the nerve. And we'll get to that when we talk about some of the optic neuropathies, but we can see very clearly here these wedge defects due to loss of axons. So needless to say, when we run a visual field on these individuals, of course, everything is reversed top to bottom in a visual field. Someone with these superior arcuate defects is going to have an inferior arcuate scotoma related to their glaucomatous damage. And then of course, we're gonna repeat those visual fields periodically to make sure that they hopefully remain stable. Uh, this is also another patient with advanced glaucoma. Again, a multicolor image, but if we look at the, um, yeah, at the blue reflectance image, we can see a rather large wedge defect here that involves part of the papillomacular bundle, but this is a visual field defect that we would expect to involve fixation. So this patient has a bit more advanced Glaucoma fixation is involved. We have to be exceedingly careful in stabilizing these patients. We can see inferiorly uh, these arcuate defects uh, down here as well. So this patient has a visual field defect both above and below the horizontal raphe. And I think this highlights very clearly the fact that we have this anatomic horizontal raphe here 
where we have visual field defects that are either above or below that horizontal raffe. And when we see visual field defects above or below, typically those visual field defects originate either in the retina itself or the optic nerve. And that helps us to localize some of the visual field defects that we see from a neuroophthalmic perspective. And this patient, interestingly, uh, we can see a, a, a rather small wedge defect much further away from the optic nerve where we typically see glaucomatous damage. Bottom line, when we're running a visual field, we're testing all of the plots, all of the areas within these particular images, and we'll be able to identify visual field defects that are, for example, here in this wedge defect, but not elsewhere. And that's kind of just a, a basic overview of what's happening from a glaucoma perspective. Here's the other thing that we need to keep in mind, and this is a schematic showing a, a, an arcuate bundle defect here. And when we run a visual field test, you know, there's been a, a, a significant number of, of studies looking at what type of visual field test should we be running on our early glaucoma patients? And then what about for our later, more advanced glaucoma patients? And we were taught years ago to typically run a 24-2 visual field. And one of the downsides to running a 24-2 visual field in an early glaucoma patient, we've all seen these patients. They come in, they may have high pressures, they may have an optic nerve that looks somewhat suspect. And we run a 24-2 standard white-on-white uh, -white parametric study and the visual field comes back relatively clean. There's not a lot to hang our hat on. And that has to deal with the fact that when we're running 24-2 uh, visual fields, we're only testing a small number of target points within the central uh, macula. And in fact, about 50% of the optic nerve axons originate in this central 20 degrees of the macula. So we're really undersampling the central visual field in early glaucoma. And that's why we've moved more toward uh, perhaps utilizing 10-2 visual fields. And I think most of our OCT instruments now are, are using uh, a variation of the hood report, which somewhat gives us guidance as to what kind of test points we're going to be testing from a structural, I'm sorry, from a functional perspective, when we overlay that on top of the structural OCT. The All Eyes Visual VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromicel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromicel technology. Fitting multifocal contact lenses 
presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit oiebroadcasting.com and sign up today.